conversation. We're discussing cricket. Well, I don't see how a thing like cricket can make you forget seeing people. Oh, don't you? Well, if that's your attitude, obviously there's nothing more to be said. Come, call it thing like cricket. Wrong tactics. We should have told him we were looking for a lost cricket ball. Yes, but he spoke to her. There must be some explanation. There is. Please forgive me. I'm quite possibly wrong, but I have known cases where a sudden shock or blow has induced the most vivid impression. I understand. You don't believe me? Oh, it's not a question of belief. Even a simple concussion may have curious effects upon an imaginative person. Yes, but I can remember every little detail. Her name, Miss Froy, everything. So interesting. You know, if one had time, one could trace the cause of the hallucination. Hallucination? Oh, precisely. There is no Miss Froy. There never was a Miss Froy. Merely a vivid subjective image. But I met her last night at the hotel. You thought you did. But what about her name? Oh, some past association. Advertisement or a character in a novel subconsciously remembered. No, there is no reason to be frightened. If you're quiet and relaxed. Thank you very much. You're listening to episode 93 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. The heroes in Alfred Hitchcock's cloak and dagger caper, The Lady Vanishes, could be the setup for a bawdy joke, one that might begin a society dame, a governess, and a nun walk into a bar. Okay, the governess and the nun are both fakes, as we all know, but they nonetheless contribute to a cinematic universe in which women of a specific social order are suddenly at the center of the narrative, doing surprising things. Before Hitchcock decided to have his heroines mauled, hacked, or pecked beyond reason on screen, he empathized with them. Hitchcock's women were for a long time wellsprings of sass, verve, and ingenuity. In Hitchcock's narrative economy, women are more interesting than a man's cursory glance could imagine. Male perception is limited to the surface, while women find deeper meaning through keen powers of observation. The Lady Vanishes is Hitchcock's proto-feminist masterpiece. It offers so many comedic and contemplative takes on the male order of things, where the only things that seem to matter are private idiosyncrasy, such as folklore or cricket. Iris Henderson, played by Margaret Lockwood, is a preoccupied bride-to-be oblivious to everyone else's problems, but once aboard the train on her way home to London, she stumbles into an international conspiracy and persists in solving a mystery despite gaslighting an ever-present danger. At the start of the picture, she's self-absorbed and spoiled, Throngs of weary travelers jostle around the reception desk at a little inn trying to get lodging for the night when Iris swans in, flanked by Blanche and Julie, played by Googie Withers and Sally Stewart. The trio require instant attention, and they get it without having to join the queue. The girls are insouciant, in the way of privileged beauty who have never had to wait or want for anything. And why should they? The world has always bent to some degree to receive the whim of glamorous dames. Their legs are tired from a day of mountain walks. They need chicken and a magnum of champagne on the double. While the girls wait for their supper, they undress down to their step-ins and chemises, unconcerned with displays of modesty when the waiter appears with their evening repast. 
The sight of three girls and their delicates shows a distinction of their class rather than any saucy display that we might have found in an American pre-code picture about chorus girls. In Hitch's scene, society dames don't feel the need to cover up around a service worker. The room porter might as well be a stuffed moose hanging on the wall for all the danger he presents to young maidens from posh families. Margaret Lockwood's presentation of a British socialite uses a glorious humor as dry as Melba toast. Standing on a table, hanging clothes to dry out on a rustic chandelier, Iris is not only at ease in her undies around a strange man, she asks him for a lift down. She's full of world-weary resignation about her upcoming walk down the aisle. She shall take the veil and the orange blossom, she remarks in a serious tone, as if she were renouncing the world and joining a cloistered order on the mountaintop. As Margaret stares into a coupe glass full of bubbly, she becomes fatalistic and a bit maudlin about marriage. Margaret tells her friends of her upcoming wedding. I've no regrets. I've been everywhere and done everything. I've eaten caviar, can, sausage rolls at the dogs. I've played baccarat, burrettes, and darts with the royal dean. What is there left for me but marriage? Rather than a head full of romantic fantasy, Iris Henderson is deadly pragmatic. Marriage is the last resort when a woman has run out of options. There's nothing left but to settle down with some man without a chin and a mustache. Before she can fall asleep amid dreary visions of married life, the ceiling rumbles with carry-on from the room upstairs. Like any rich girl in a big room to herself, Iris rings the front desk to complain, then later pays off the concierge to evict the noisy occupant in the dead of night. The bedless lodger then storms the door and blackmails Iris into restoring his room. If not, he'll say she invited him there and raise a scandal, which even a girl as bold as Iris would not risk before her walk down the aisle. Michael Redgrave, as the ruthless blackmailer, makes a smooth screen debut in the role. We know the two will meet again and that this pair of bickering antagonists will eventually hook up. Like many screwball romances, the lady vanishes asks the question, can a woman truly fall in love unless she hated a man at first sight? What happens on the train might be the first time Iris has had the burden of responsibility. Suddenly, she stops thinking about herself and reveals hidden depths of observation. Iris doesn't simply humor the older woman who minds her after Iris takes a bump on the head. She's present with Miss Froy, a governess played by Dame May Whitty. Miss Froy talks about herself, explains why she's a tea snob and only ever drinks Harriman's Herbal, because after all, a million Mexicans drink it. Iris is grateful to the woman for her kindness and takes her advice to drop off and have a nap. When Iris awakens, everyone in her compartment and on the train insists that Miss Froy was never there, that she's just a figment of Iris's imagination, the result of the bump on the head. But Iris rises to the challenge. Iris knows her own mind. She knows the, the truth. And she resolves to find Miss Froy, who most certainly must be somewhere on the train. 
After Miss Roy disappears, Iris remembers each tiny detail about what the woman wore, an oatmeal tweed costume with a tri-corner hat. She even remembers her shoes and what type of pocket square she wore. She remembers the herbal tea. She recalls the men who reluctantly passed the sugar in the dining car. Iris manages to convince one passenger, Gilbert, Gilbert, the folklorist from the mountain inn, who's played by Michael Redgrave. He may only be humoring her at the beginning, won over by her pretty face above the monogram scarf, but he listens and takes her seriously. As fastidious as Hitchcock was known to be with costume in his pictures, the monogram scarf seems anything but accidental. At first glance, a monogram might be just a way to single out Iris Henderson's class background, that she's from a family of note. But Hitch has chosen it for another purpose. The scarf isn't just a snobby heritage marker. It complements Iris Henderson's character. She knows herself, which lends courage of conviction when it comes to Miss Froy. The scarf rests in front of her chest like a shield against calamity. It's a symbol of protection for Iris. And maybe this is just me, but when I look at that monogram, I'm reminded of the insignia on the badge of my Catholic school uniform. It looks like the monogram for the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the order of nuns who taught in my primary school. Perhaps I'm reading too much into the monogram, but after all, Hitchcock was also a Catholic. Is it so improbable that he would have had connected the heroic girl and the nun in the picture with a real-life order of sisters? I'm sticking to my story. Iris Henderson is adrift among a sea of men who deny her version of events, from the train porters, cricket hooligans, the dicey magician, a shady philanderer, and Dr. Egon Hartz, played by Paul Lukash, who sounds like a nefarious day-walking Dracula. Iris will not be hoodwinked by a bunch of men, thanks to the symbol of protection around her neck. I should also note that I adore Paul Lukash in this and every role he played. I read that he was born on a train as it pulled into the station in Budapest, which may be why he looks so comfortable as an authority on the rails. In one scene, at the end of the first-class train carriage with Gilbert, she questions the cricket lads Charters and Caldecott, played by Basil Radford and Naughton Wayne. They were the men who refused or eventually passed the sugar while Iris had tea with Miss Froy. The men are reluctant to commit their memory, and they resist Iris's questions. Then Dr. Hartz appears out of nowhere to offer an explanation. He offers the medical opinion that Miss Froy never existed and is merely the result of the bump on the head Iris received prior to boarding the train. He uses the phrase about her imagination and that she may have gotten it from a novel, which sets off every red light for the ways in which men in medicine have historically pathologized women's experiences. At the end of the carriage, where the space widens out, Iris Henderson stands between the two men who think she's seeing things, four men if we count the departed cricket lads. The train is rollicking on the tracks. The two men, each tall and thin, stand straight with their feet planted firmly. They are the immovable force. By contrast, Margaret, thin as a reed, wavers back and forth. 
the monogrammed scarf is the only thing that separates her from the creepy doctor. Margaret plays the scene in such an interesting way. On one hand, it looks like she's rocking in place, battered back and forth by their resistance to her story, that she struggles to gain her footing. She looks unsteady, reeling about as though she will fold. But the longer the scene goes on, Margaret becomes quiet. She stares at the brain doctor. And when she pitches forward on her feet back and forth, suddenly it looks like she might pounce on him. She might strike him down. Is she getting ready for an attack? She hi-hats him, thank you, for his professional opinion, when clearly she doesn't believe him for a moment. Gilbert acquits himself in the way swoon merchants often do. They stick close. Or as he puts it, my father always taught me never desert a lady in trouble. He shadows Iris like a watchdog, and by doing so, eventually sees the proof that she's telling the truth about Miss Froy. They share a scene in the baggage car that does double duty between slapstick comedy and white-knuckle suspense. By the virtue of their partnership in the baggage car, where they investigate and fight off one of the bad guys, we know for certain that romance is written written in the stars for them, if they manage to survive the murder plot. In the baggage car at one point, an Italian henchman, the, the magician, who clearly lied about Miss Froy, pulls a knife on Gilbert. Margaret accidentally kicks Gilbert when she's struggling to intervene. A woman should always let a romantic interest know that she's capable of doing him in if needs must, which is a ripe thread of comedy to unravel in the 1930s. Most notably, Jean Arthur springs to mind when she tests the poisonous quotient of gelatine on guinea pig William Powell in the ex-Mrs. Bradford, or brains him with a skull in other scenes of the picture. Iris climbs up in the baggage car and bites the hand of the Italian to get him to drop the the knife aimed for the heart of her beloved, Because although women probably can't match men on feats of strength, they always have strong teeth on hand. In the fight scene, it's a substitute or a rehearsal for a bedroom scene. You can't go wrong with that. It shows how well they mesh in the heat of things and what they might be doing for a better outlet for their combined energy. The barnyard audience for the baggage car fracas, a baby calf, bunnies in a magician's hat, and a flock of doves give the scene a comic lilt, but also offer that nod from nature for fertility that they are appropriately coupled. The Lady Vanishes argues in a crucial moment that men can't see beyond the nose on their face. For the For the scene where we finally get a look at the patient brought on board, wrapped head to toe in bandages, we see Iris poke her head in. She tells Gilbert and the audience that something isn't right about the nun watching over the nurse. Before the camera shows the audience, Gilbert must take a second look. The the camera adopts his sight of vision and pans down the elaborate black robes to catch that she wears high heels, just like Iris said. Iris asks if he ever knew a nun who wore high heels. Gilbert had failed to notice them. He only saw the nun, that great bolt of black and white. 
The same thing goes for the doctor, Egon Hartz. He can't figure out how the English couple guessed. He assumes, suspiciously, that that his hired operative must have confessed. Catherine Lacey, as the nun, might be a traitor, a spy working on the wrong side, but she draws the line, the limits for what she'll do for money. She refuses to aid in the murder of an Englishwoman, Miss Froy. She probably wore the heels as a signal, hoping some bright-eyed dame would suss her out. The nun ultimately thwarts the doctor's plan and risks her life to save everyone on board. Miss Froy is the most underestimated woman on the train. In a way, you could say that the picture's title is what happens to every woman when she grows older. She vanishes. For the most part, the Miss Froys of the world remain invisible, ignored, looked over, which gels nicely with the film's script. No one else on board seems to care that a little old lady has gone missing. Not the cricket goons, the porters, the passengers. Only Iris holds on and fights for her, and then the nun takes up the cause. Everyone assumes Miss Freud doesn't matter until they see her sprinting across the forest under a hail of gunfire, running off to save democracy. Hitchcock's picture invites the audience to look closer beyond surface appearances. Hitch owed Gainsborough Pictures one last effort on his contract. A lady vanishes, or the lady vanishes, fell into his lap. Already, his heart was across the waters, basking in the shiny new things in store, under contract with David O. Selznick in Hollywood. That didn't mean that Hitch phoned it in, or did less than his best during the shoot, But perhaps because he was looking forward to what came next, he operated with less stress than he would have had otherwise. The atmosphere on set wasn't entirely placid, though. In her memoir, Margaret Lockwood noted that tea was forever being served on set. If she had seen Hitch drink one cup, he had a thousand. After he finished, he would casually throw the cup over his shoulder and leave it smashed on the floor followed by the saucer. At first, the crashing porcelain startled and upset Margaret, but then she grew used to it. It was just Hitch being Hitch. Perhaps a little bit of calamity was meant to stave off a bigger disaster. There was also the bit about the picture being Michael Redgrave's screen debut. His career on the stage began about the same time that Margaret's did, Redgrave bristled at the way he was thrown together for publicity's sake with Margaret before they had even been properly introduced. They were photographed dancing together at a social event in a pose that suggested something more might be going on. Initially, Redgrave felt Margaret was aloof and snobby on set, as others had before and after. After filming commenced, he realized that she was an absolute professional dedicated to the work and that she had learned the art of acting for the screen, whereas Redgrave only had stage technique. Redgrave grew stroppy and flustered. He didn't mesh with Hitchcock's method. Redgrave snapped at the director in the theater. We'd have three weeks to rehearse this, he said. Hitch replied, we have three minutes. 
No doubt Redgrave was hardly the first or last theater snob who felt that the pictures produced emotional chicanery next to the organic business on stage, and Hitch was a dab hand at putting them in place. Margaret Lockwood shared a good deal in common with the heroine she played. Just like Iris Henderson, Margaret knew her own mind. She was less interested in what men said than they may have imagined. When she auditioned for Alexander Corda, he told her to go back to her typing or shorthand and give up any idea that she could make it as an actress. Margaret ignored him. Morris Oster, head of production in Gainsborough Film Studio, gave Margaret a stern lecture when they first met. He was aghast when they met one day at the races, and she wore an old mac and skirt without stockings and dusty shoes. He reprimanded Margaret for her appearance and told her that a film star should have higher standards in the way they dress. Margaret heeded his directions for official studio tours and appearances, but otherwise she carried on in casual trousers and clothes that were comfortable. Margaret was always confident in her talent. When Hollywood called, she went and made two pictures, but she couldn't wait to return to London. She wasn't buying what they were selling. Margaret went her own way. In an article from Picture Goer magazine from 1938 to coincide with the release of Bank Holiday, which made her a star, she defined glamour in her own terms. True glamour, she wrote, went beyond what a woman wore or how she looked. To Margaret, the most glamorous women were interesting conversationalists. Best of all was a woman, she recalled, who had made a study of the dictionary. The glamour puss added new words to her vocabulary on the regular, not in a pedantic or pretentious pretentious way, but in effect to become more vivid and compelling. When Margaret played a Corrine in A Girl Must Live, in uh, there's one number where the girls tease a nightclub audience with their best traits. Margaret steps up and is a standout for announcing that she's the well-read girl. The other showgirls boast of their sex appeal or physical charms, but for Margaret, she's the bookish girl of your dreams. Margaret had no intention of abandoning her acting career when her husband preferred that she only work inside the home. Left to her her own devices, Margaret knocked around in slacks and a hair scarf. She was teetotal, in bed by 10 every night to be fresh for her 5 o'clock alarm for the studio. She collected antique jewelry and had new pieces commissioned based on the pieces of bling she found in paintings from museums. She was a devoted mother to her daughter, Toots. Born in Karachi, which was then dubbed British India, in 1916, she returned to London with her mother and older brother when she was three years old. Margaret's mother, Margaret Evelyn, had been put in charge of her younger siblings at the tender age of 11, after her Irish mother died giving birth to her 11th child. Margaret Evelyn was unfazed about living on her own while her husband remained in Karachi. Although she wasn't always a reasonable woman, Margaret Evelyn took Margaret and her brother Lynn to the pictures three or four times a week at a time when regular cinema attendance was not the norm. 
She encouraged Margaret's showbiz ambitions when it was socially unacceptable for a proper young woman to appear on the stage for a living. The pictures Margaret saw with silent stars such as Garbo and Esther Ralston made a deep impression. During a prolonged kiss in one of Esther Ralston's pictures, little Margaret shouted out loud, Oh, aren't they ever going to stop? At an early age, Margaret began to act out the silent movie scenes at home. She did the same with the stories she read. As a girl, she enrolled in a local dance school near the family home in Norwood, a London north suburb, with a bird's-eye view of the city. Through the dance school, Margaret had her stage debut at the age of nine as one of the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dreams. Also in the cast was a teenage boy who kept forgetting his lines. Margaret knew everyone's lines off by heart, but she was reluctant to prompt the boy because he seemed very grown up. He was a teenager. She would later make several pictures with the teenager when he became a film director. His name was Carol Reed. When she was 13, Margaret auditioned for the prestigious Cone Dancing School. They were looking to fill the lead role in a panto called Babe in the Woods. Margaret won the lead role of Babe, but didn't get to keep it after the girl who was originally cast made a miraculous uh, recovery in time for the opening. But Margaret was kept on as a dancer. From the age of 13, she earned money as a dancer in tea-time cabarets and dancing in the Regent Street department store. At 15, she was cast in Noel Coward's stage production of Cavalcade as one of the daughters. Coward noted that Margaret was worth watching. She didn't get to stay in the cast, though, after a man in the company dropped the F-bomb. Word traveled back to Margaret Evelyn, who immediately wrote a letter of resignation for her daughter. Margaret Evelyn chaperoned Margaret throughout auditions and performances, but she drew the line at coarse manners backstage. Also, she would not allow Margaret to appear in a pub singing and dancing as the school had placed her. After she was quit out of the uh, Coward production, her mother asked Margaret what she wanted to do next. Without hesitating, Margaret replied that she wanted to enroll in RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Margaret auditioned and won a place. Not only that, she won a scholarship. But Margaret didn't keep it. Another girl in class couldn't afford the fees and needed the scholarship to stay, so Margaret gave her the scholarship. Margaret figured she could afford the fees, so why not share it with a girl who couldn't? At 17, while she was studying in RADA, Margaret began dating a 19-year-old boy named Rupert Leon. Red flags should have gone off with Margaret as they did with her mother. Margaret Evelyn hated him on sight but in a bow to convention, accepted an invitation to have tea with Rupert's parents. After tea, when cigarettes were offered, Margaret took one. Rupert blanched and voiced his disapproval in front of everyone, saying it was an unwomanly habit, and he hoped she would cease immediately. Back at home, Margaret Evelyn started a big row about her daughter's boyfriend. She didn't want him in the house. She didn't even want to hear his name mentioned. Margaret tried to defend her beau. Margaret Evelyn shouted back, If he's like this now, what do you think he'll be like later? 
Meanwhile, Margaret progressed quickly in RADA. She was able to compress two years of study into 14 months and graduated. For the big graduation performance, um, RADA chose Leotine Saga, the director famous for Madchen in uniform, to produce the staging Hanala. Everyone wanted the lead role. Margaret was the youngest of three finalists. Saga pointed at Margaret and said, I'll have that little one. In the audience for her lead role in Hanala was Herbert de Leon, a theatrical agent. He was taken with Margaret's talent, offered to be her agent. She stayed with him for 45 years without ever signing a contract. Herbert believed his clients were always free to work with someone else. For Margaret, he was closer than her own family. He was Margaret's mentor, father figure advisor, and business manager until his death. Herbert found a job for Margaret the day after she graduated from RADA. She joined a production that Herbert's brother had put together in a little theater. From there, he booked her into another stage show called Family Affairs. At the same time, he scored her a screen test. The night before the test, Rupert crashed his dodgy car into a railing. Margaret hit the windshield and went home with a shiner. At home, she bathed her eye, worrying about what she'd say in the studio. She arrived the next morning, frazzled and sleepless. The makeup men took one look at her, but they didn't bat an eye. It was the cameraman who balked. It wasn't about the black eye. He said he couldn't work with her thick black eyebrows. They would have to come off. They put her in a chair, shaved off her eyebrows, and filled them in with pencil as was the fashion of the time. Margaret was gutted. In a haze, she did the scene. Afterwards, she rang her mother to warn her about the sudden change in appearance. Once she tearfully confessed the forced shaving, Margaret Evelyn howled what into the receiver. Although an offer wasn't forthcoming from the test, Herbert took the test to British Lion Studio. Based on the test, they cast Margaret and Lorna Dune. Out of nowhere, Margaret learned that her new deal was even sweeter than first imagined. The second female lead became ill, and Margaret stepped in to replace her. Margaret Lockwood was 18 years old when she signed a contract with British Lion. For the first year, she would make 500 pounds for 50 days of work. In the second year, 750 pounds for 50 days work. If the allotted days extended, she would receive a daily rate of 10 pounds and then 15 pounds per day. British Lion progressed Margaret's career through a series of quota quickies, as they were called, the pictures that satisfied a set number of British productions that kept Hollywood from having a monopoly in the cinemas. Margaret played supporting roles to Hollywood stars like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Laura LaPlante. Her first big break came when Maurice Chevalier chose her from 200 girls to play his romantic lead in The Beloved Vagabond in 1936. Herbert brokered a sweet deal for Margaret with Gainsborough Studio for £4,000 a year. It was a deal that made Margaret Evelyn balk in disbelief. £4,000 for a little slip of a girl like you? In Britain, Margaret became a star when Bank Holiday premiered. Later in the year, when she took first billing in The Lady Vanishes and became an international star, it wasn't long before Hollywood came calling. Daryl Zanuck 
head of production for 20th Century Fox, wanted Margaret in the studio. Ted Black, who ran the day-to-day operations in Gainsborough, gave Margaret the news that they were loaning her to Fox. It was only natural for Margaret to imagine that she was going to star next to one of the resident swoon merchants in Fox, either Tyrone Power or Don Amici. She was excited. It was up to Ted Black to break the bad news that she wouldn't be working with either man. Instead, she would play a supporting role next to Shirley Temple in Susanna of the Mounties. Margaret rarely had a fit over anything the studio asked her to do, but this time she gave out. She gave out to Ted Black, how dare he, and Gainsborough, send her to play a stooge to a child. Why should she, a star, play second fiddle to a little girl? Although she wasn't thrilled with the assignment, Margaret was not about to turn down an offer to work in a major Hollywood studio. She was reluctant to go alone. Her Weasley husband, Rupert, declared he couldn't get the time off work. Her mother, Margaret Evelyn, refused to go on the basis that she was too old to make the trip. She was only 55 years old, by the way. In the end, her sister-in-law, Betty, who was 19, jumped at the chance for a trip to Hollywood. Gainsborough publicity went into overdrive. They took photo shoots and reported on Margaret's preparations to work in Hollywood. She brought several fur coats, cocktail dresses, suits, and and accessories to match. In one item, she posed with her husband having a goodbye lunch. Rupert, Rupert would only consent to being photographed from the back. As soon as they set sail, Margaret was seasick and would be for the entire voyage. By the time they reached New York Harbor, she was so weak that a physician needed to give her a shot to rally her strength to leave the ship. Margaret's press conferences in New York City were a disaster. She had the unfortunate luck of having arrived shortly after another English actress who received greater fanfare when Vivian Lee captured the role of Scarlett O'Hara after a two-year search highly publicized by Selznick's studio. She met the press gang in her hotel room. Although Margaret was dressed in stylish clothing topped with a fur coat, the reporters were aghast that she wore flat shoes instead of high heels. They made rude comments about her choice of footwear. The news hounds wanted Margaret to pose in a negligee. Margaret was offended and snapped that she didn't own one. One of the men asked if she styled her hair after Brenda Fraser. Confused, Margaret asked who Brenda Fraser was. The reporters couldn't believe that Margaret didn't know about the most popular New York socialite, whose face was a regular feature on the front pages. They misread her confusion for being high hat and aloof. They asked what business her husband was in. Margaret said, steal, and the men asked, what does he steal? The reporters mocked her with questions about whether she hoped to meet a red Indian as she traveled west, and Margaret's waspish reply was taken out of context when the articles appeared. They made her look like a snob and a rube. By the time she arrived in Hollywood, the publicity department and 20th Century Fox were pretty annoyed. They became even more so when Margaret left her fan mail to be ignored in in the uh, office. She was waiting on letters from home and didn't realize the importance of American, that American film studios placed on answering the fan mail. 
as she was getting lots of it from the release of The Lady Vanishes. Once production on Susanna of the Mounties began, Margaret was overwhelmed by the scale of Fox Studio. It was so big and impersonal. She never really felt like she developed a sense of camaraderie she had known in the British studios. Margaret noted in her memoir that Shirley Temple was a pro and impressive in what she could do before a camera, but she was still, after all, a child. They weren't going to be the best buddies. After a scene would wrap, Shirley would rush off to do her lessons in her dressing room. Margaret did tour around with Betty and enjoy the sights and sea swimming, but overall she felt lonely and unhappy. Frank Lloyd, a Welsh director in Paramount, wanted to borrow Margaret for Rulers of the Sea. She wanted nothing more than to stick to the terms of her limited contract with Fox and leave at the end of six weeks. But Margaret hadn't bargained on the additional time added on, unmentioned in the contract, where she had to stick around in case she was needed for retakes. Daryl Zanuck, head of Fox Production, had to sign off on every picture, and he had a backlog of films he still needed to watch. While Margaret had been been prepared to sail home, Gainsborough loaned her to Paramount. Although she wasn't thrilled with the extended stay, she got on well with Lloyd and her co-star, Doug Fairbanks Jr., whom she had worked with in the past. She felt more at home in Paramount than she had in Fox. Frank Lloyd realized Margaret had limited social interactions in the film colony, so he reached out to Joan Bennett to take Margaret under her wing. Joan befriended Margaret. She invited her into the social circle where they hosted cocktail parties and receptions with her husband, Walter Wanger. Although she was amused that Margaret was teetotal, Joan Bennett dubbed Margaret the Queen of Lemonade. Both Fox and Paramount had considered buying out Margaret's contract. Daryl Zanuck wanted her to become a blonde, saying she looked too much like Joan Bennett, which I can kind of see. Margaret didn't want to change her hair color or have a big Hollywood makeover. In the meantime, Rupert quit his job in the steel business and joined her in Hollywood. Surprisingly, he settled into the possibility of making a permanent move to California. He wanted to stay. But it was a telegram from Carol Reed, along with the war looming on the horizon, that made Margaret decide to sail at once. As she left things, it looked like she might return in a shorter long-term basis to Hollywood, but Margaret never did return to Hollywood. Carol Reed wanted Margaret to play a sex worker in The Stars Look Down. It was the first of several roles during the Second World War years that made Margaret, Margaret Britain's most popular film star. She was given a makeover to play the first in a number of lusty villains in The Man in Grey in 1943. The studio filled in the mole on her upper cheek with black pencil. They thickened her brows and created the Hunter's Bow lip line that was all the rage with Hollywood stars such as Joan Crawford. Her mother, Margaret Evelyn, was not an easy woman. The mother and daughter stopped speaking after Margaret Evelyn appeared as a witness against her daughter in a custody battle with Rupert. She was a witness for Rupert, the son-in-law that she hated. Margaret continued to pay monthly support for her mother, but they didn't speak for the last 15 years of her mother's life. Margaret Lockwood worked in British Lion, then Gainsborough, and J. Arthur Rank Studios over the course of her career, plus her brief stint in Hollywood with Fox and Paramount. Margaret was 
Britain's most durable star. Although she's best known for playing villains in pictures such as The Man in Grey and Wicked Lady, she also played true blue heroines like Iris Henderson. Margaret's film career ended in 1955, although she returned for one last picture in 1976, playing the wicked stepmother in The Slipper and the Rose, The Story of Cinderella. Margaret returned to the stage in 1955 and enjoyed many hits, and then she uh, enjoyed another career uh, that lasted for a long time in television. She enjoyed a big television success with her last role, playing a judge in the, the drama Justice, which ran until 1974. Margaret had planned to continue the character and develop the series into moving her from the bench to number 10 Downing Street. Producers at the time said that it was too far-fetched and canceled the series. A few years later, and Maggie Thatcher took the office. In 1939, a British journalist praising her performance in The Stars Look Down quoted Margaret as saying, Ever since I started making pictures, I have been fighting against the tendency of British studios to make their actresses nothing more than characterless ornaments. Margaret Lockwood created indelible characters on screen for decades. The following books helped me to write the episode. Lucky Star, the autobiography of Margaret Lockwood, published in 1955. My Life in Films by Margaret Lockwood, published in 1947. Once a Wicked Lady, a biography of Margaret Lockwood, published in 1989. Margaret Lockwood, Queen of the Silver Screen by Lindsay Spence, published in 2016. Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light by Patrick McGilligan, published in 2003. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 94 when I talk about Anne Todd and the Seventh Fail. Thanks for listening. Leave a nice review on iTunes if you're happy with the podcast. Thanks very much.